Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Ontario secondary school teachers hold a one-day strike. We get the perspective from the union president and the minister of education. And Donald Trump calls Justin Trudeau two-faced after he was overheard on camera speaking with a group of world leaders about the U.S. president. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. It is strike day in Ontario. Secondary school teachers across Ontario are out picketing uh, what uh, the, uh, the Ontario government and the lack of a contract and proposed cuts that are uh, on the way. Let's bring in Harvey Bischoff, president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. He is with us now. Harvey, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, good afternoon, Scott. So what's next, Harvey? Where do we go from here? Well, I hope we go back to a bargaining table and we start making progress on securing uh, the quality of education in Ontario. And um, then we can, uh, you know, prevent any further disruption and and get to a deal that that supports our students. Are there any more disruptions planned at this point? No, there's nothing planned at this point. Um, You know, like I say, our sincere hope is we get a signal from the government that they have a proposal to bring us, um, something they didn't do over the four days that we spent, Saturday to to Tuesday at midnight. Um, They didn't have a single new proposal for us. I I hope that's going to change. So what happens tomorrow, Thursday? Uh, My members, support staff and teachers go back to work. They uh, provide the services and supports to students that they always do. Um, and we look to the government to start listening to parents, uh, parents who expressed themselves through the government's own consultation and said they didn't want larger class sizes or mandatory learning um, and uh, you know, hope we can move forward in that fashion. What are the outstanding issues here? What is the hammering point, Harvey? What's, what, what is the, what's the stumbling block here? Is, is class size the main issue? So the class size is a big one in in two ways. They are proposing, I mean, they've already unilaterally increased average class sizes this year and are proposing to increase them up to 25 to 1 on average uh, over the next couple of years. They've at the same time tabled language that would eliminate any cap, any maximum on any class size. So completely take away the guide rails on decision making and any class could be as big as the number of kids you could stuff into a room. Um, They're still insisting on mandatory e-learning, a a program for which they have absolutely no evidence that it's good for students. Um, And and they're looking to erode over the lifetime of the collective agreement the number of support staff, so those those people who uh, work face-to-face with students with special needs and at-risk students um, who, you know, we think two years from now will have the same needs they have now, and and those, those positions shouldn't be eroded. You haven't said wages in any of this, Harvey. Where does that play into the where, where does that play into the the process? Yeah, no, appreciate that, and I'm happy to speak to that. Um, you know, the minister has repeatedly claimed it is the singular issue that that's the obstacle to agreement, and it is clearly not with all of these quality of education issues. But what we put on the table is that my members uh, should be able to keep up with inflation and and not catch up over over seven years of having fallen behind, but simply keep up with from this point forward so that they would have compensation increases that match the inflation index um, and they'd be in real terms making next year what they're making this year. How have they fallen behind in seven years, Harvey? Uh, because every year, so so go back to some wage freezes uh, back in you know 2012 to 2014, and then um, and then compensation increases that were less than the rate of inflation. 
uh, to a total of about 8% uh, over those seven years. So, so in real terms, my members are making 8% less than they were seven years ago. Aren't we all? Uh, no, in fact, um, in fact, when you take a look at compensation increases, uh, they uh, they have tracked inflation over time. Um, private sector increases are tracking above inflation right now. Um, the trend in public sector bargaining and arbitrations, where an independent uh, third party makes a decision around compensation, are tracking right around uh, inflation, around two percent. Um, so it's it's. It's not the case that uh, average uh, average compensation has fallen behind. Um, uh, we remember back in the day of Dalton McGuinty and, and everyone was getting a 2% raise during the height of the recession. He asked uh, the unions to take a pause on that, and we know what happened there. Uh, do you see us going the same direction here? I mean, um, is it... Uh, what if the government asked you or said to you, you know, we're going to we're going to work with the class sizes and, and all the other concerns, but we want to keep cap on these salaries? Where will that leave you? Well, so, I, I mean, going back to to uh, Premier McGinty and, and the current situation, they didn't ask uh, for a pause. They legislated a pause, which the court decided was an interference in my members right to free collective bargaining. We believe that this government's bill 124 is exactly the same thing. Any government has a right to come to the bargaining table with a mandate, even a very restrictive mandate, uh, even an, you know, an austere mandate, and say we want to bargain a conclusion to this, and then we'll bargain. Um, but to impose it by legislation um, is, you know, it's been determined in the past to be a violation of my members' rights, and we may well be in the same place now. Is that not what we're trying to do right now, though? Is get is you know is is come to something here? I, I guess the point that I'm making here is if wages are are never a an issue, and and the, you know I've heard that every round that we go through, every couple of years with this, it's never an issue. If if the government was to move on those others, but wants to keep the the wage issue the same, is that enough to move you guys? Then those wages should be negotiated. So, in other words, no. No, don't legislate, negotiate is what I'm is what I'm saying. So you're not happy with a one percent over the next. Uh, is that what the government, the current government offer is for you right now? Uh, well, it's not an offer; it's a legislated cap at one percent. At one percent. All right. So, but you're not happy whether it's a legislated cap or not. You're not happy with one percent. That's right. We're proposing that my members keep up with inflation after all those years of falling behind. So would that be 2%? 1.7? Right 1.75? Uh, you know, some, I, I don't know what exactly the consumer price index is at the moment, but it's, it's in the 2% range for sure. So where do you think this is going, Harvey? Um, well, I hope it's going back to the bargaining table and we're able to negotiate a collective agreement. Uh, what message do you have for the parents or students who uh, are inconvenienced by all of this? And and again, as I've talked to you before, Harvey, have been through this countless times, whether it's this government or one of the other two major uh, political parties. Uh, some of us have gone through this as students and as as parents. Uh, and again, you know, what I'm hearing from you, Harvey, doesn't seem to be a lot different than what I've heard in years past. Yeah, so I have to apologize. I'm going to answer that question, then I have to get off because as you... I understand, uh, yeah, you're limited time here. Go ahead. I have, a, I have another interview uh, already calling me. Yeah. Um, but uh, but uh, look, what I would say to parents is the very things we're 
we're proposing are the things parents in the government consultations that they tried to keep secret said they want. They don't. The parents don't want bigger classes. They don't want mandatory learning, and and those are our proposals on the table. Um, and so I, I'm sympathetic about this uh, short-term disruption, but the long-term damage to the system if we allow this government to go forward, would be worse. Harvey Bishop is with us, president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. Harvey, thanks for the time. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Stephen Lecce, uh, education minister for the government of Ontario and is with us now. Stephen, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Not at all, Scott. Good to be on the show. I uh, just got off the line with Harvey Bischoff of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. He said over the last four days of negotiations, you've literally not offered them nothing, sort of gave a grocery list, including class size and e-learning and such of things that were still sticking points. Oddly enough, wages were not mentioned. I had to go back mm-hmm. and ask him that. Uh, if you right. were if you were to relax some of the stuff on class size and what have you and made this solely about their compensation, which is usually what these contracts are all about where would we be you know look i think the truth is scott that there's a real insistence by the teachers unions to define this anything but compensation but the truth is we have said a that second highest remunerated second highest paid teachers in the country who you know look we value teachers in ontario but they're the second highest in the nation on average should we be the highest we're the second highest in the nation. We're quite high. Uh, and I'm arguing that when you're the second highest in the nation, when you pay them on average $92,000 on average for a worker, and we value their work, but we're offering them a $750 million increase. Like there's some governments in the past that offer them 0%. We're offering 1% for all public sector workers, including teachers. And we offered the exact same deal QP agreed to just a week and a half ago to the education workers of OSSTF, and they walk and they said no. Why? Because it's one percent, and they seek a two percent increase, which represents one point five billion dollars. And Scott, I would argue that's unfair for the people of this province who want to see more money in the system for their kids. And yes, reasonable for teachers, and one percent is reasonable every year for the life of the contract. But my goodness, when the when the priority seems to be on compensation for themselves and not on our teachers, or rather not on our kids, I think it really uh, demonstrates that it isn't really about our kids. And if it was. They'd stay negotiating in good faith and not walk out on them today. So any room to budge on class size, that seems to be the sticking point or certainly what they're they're pushing in the media. Uh, that obviously yeah. is resonating with parents. They say even a study you guys did, uh, the Conservatives did, said that parents do not want an increase in class size. Is there any wiggle room here? Well, look, what I'm very proud of, to be quite frank, Scott, is for the Uh, earliest years in our schools, which is where the evidence shows small classroom sizes are critical. We're maintaining the smallest classroom size in the nation for the early years, essentially one to three. I'm proud of that. We're also, we've also made a very reasonable proposal to reduce the classroom provincial average from 28 down to 25. The day we made that, the the teachers union leadership decided to escalate. We announced online learning from four mandates to two. And the day we did that, other teachers unions escalated. And what it shows, Scott, is irrespective of the goodwill and the reasonableness of the government of the day, and some governments more than others, but we've been very reasonable through this process, the unions decide, the teachers' union leaders decide to escalate irrespective of the premier. I mean, my entire life in this province, I've seen one truth. 
You could be a new Democratic premier, conservative or liberal. The one commonality is the teacher unions escalate. And my message to them is to seize escalations because these strikes hurt kids disproportionately, particularly kids with exceptionalities, kids from low-income families, families just don't have the fiscal ability, like the finances to afford child care. It's not right. It's not fair. And I think if they cared about children, they wouldn't be out in the class today. They would continue negotiating, bargaining hard, and providing predictability for all the families of this province who are quite disappointed that they have walked out today. What are you getting from parents uh, as far as feedback, especially on the class size issue? Well, I think what they're asking all the parties, including the government, to be is reasonable, which is, I think we heard them when we made an announcement to go from 28 to 25, and yet even still, on that day, the union dismissed it, walked out, essentially, on that option, or walked away from that option. And I just think for a lot of folks listening or observing, they're saying, well, look, the government is being systematically reasonable. They made major moves. They increased investments by $200 million more million this year in our last fall economic statement, our sort of quarterly update, mini-budget, if you will. Another $200 million more million, meaning we're now spending more in Ontario than we've ever done in the history of the province under this progressive conservative government. And even still, it's insufficient. It's not about the kids in that case. It's because the compensation rates aren't what they want. And I get why teacher, why unions exist to fight for the benefits, the entitlements, uh, the job security of their members. I get it, and that's fair game. But that's not my job. My job is to be fair to teachers and our workers, but most importantly, fight for our students. And I want more money for mental health, more money for mathematics, more money for kids with special education needs. That's where the priority should be. And I wish the discourse, I wish the discussion focused on them and not on ourselves. So what happens now after a one-day strike? Where are we? Uh, Meetings scheduled? What happens now? Through the mediator, we've offered more dates. We're hoping we can uh, keep negotiating and bargaining hard. I've offered uh, independent mediation, which uh, just for context for folks during the QP deal, look, I understand for people listening, they will say, look, um, this seems tense, uh, far apart, you know, a lot of finger pointing, and it's it's not particularly constructive when you, when you see this stuff. But the point is, we had a similar experience with QP. I uh, turned to private mediation. The union agreed. We all agreed. And we got a deal, even in a hostile environment. So my point to tip to the parents is I remain hopeful and focused on getting a deal that provides that predictability, but it takes two to tangle. I need the union to be reasonable, and I do think there's a deal in sight if they can be reasonable. But if they're dogmatic on the compensation, if they're absolutely focused on expanding their benefits and, and, and pay at the expense of other priorities, then I think uh, we're going to continue to be in this real difficult impasse. And I just think they got to be reasonable. Parents want us all to be reasonable. And I think what the government has consistently shown that we have been. For, for 200 days, we started this bargaining process. For months, they've tabled their first agreement, their first deal or proposal. And since then, they haven't made one change. Not one substantive change, Scott. And I think people, when they fear, hear that, they think, oh, my goodness, how is it possible that for hmm. all the months they haven't made one move and it underscores the fact that for them, they want to maintain the $1.5 billion increase. And I just think that's just, to be quite frank, inconsistent. I mean, just for context, since 2004 to 2000 and uh, roughly uh, 2000 and uh, I believe 18, the education spending has more than doubled. The number of teachers in Ontario during that period has increased by 15,000. You juxtapose that by 100,000 fewer students. Yeah. I mean, that's just for that period. So my point is, folks, we're being reasonable. We're investing more in education than ever before, but I'm making your student a priority, and I think that's what parents want me to keep fighting for. Any more one-day strikes on the horizon we know of? 
I'm not aware of any. I certainly uh, would call on the union to cease from escalation. I try to get all the members of the opposition to stand with me in this message. I, I didn't hear uh, unity of purpose on that, but I'm hoping that we can make clear, standing with parents, that this escalation must stop. There should be no further strikes because they fundamentally hurt our kids. Education Minister Stephen Lecce has been with us, Government of Ontario, uh, talking about strike and the one-day strike today. Stephen, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. uh, In case you haven't noticed or heard, and um, uh, there was a uh, meeting yesterday of uh, uh, NATO leaders and sort of a casual cocktail party thing. And there was uh, leaders from the UK and France and the prime minister was there. And some words were spoke in regard to Donald Trump and so on and so forth. Uh, This was in a room where it is obviously under camera and Mike and such. These comments were recorded as a response. Donald Trump called um, uh, uh, Justin Trudeau two-faced, saying that they're upset simply because he called them to task on not contributing enough to NATO. How is this playing in the UK? Let's bring in Redmond Shannon, uh, our Europe correspondent for Global News Canada, and he is with us now. Redmond, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. No problem, Scott. Uh, when all this started, the day before it started, we were talking with experts and trying to predict it, what we would be talking about coming out the other end, what uh, the, the big issue would be. What has stood out so far with this NATO meeting, these NATO meetings in, uh, in London, and will we be talking about this incident when it is all over? Is this the biggest uh, thing to come out of it? Yes, well, I think that the, the same answer to both questions is that this is what has stood out so far, unfortunately, for, for many reasons, I suppose, that uh, this meeting, this NATO meeting uh, north of London, was to celebrate 70 years of NATO. And it was supposedly uh, more, little more than uh, some minor meetings between leaders, uh, bilateral meetings and multilateral meetings between NATO leaders to perhaps iron out some things. But it wasn't an official summit. They did hope to make progress, particularly on the issue of Turkey's incursion into Syria and how much support NATO can give for that and therefore in return get to make sure Turkey's on board for NATO's uh, ongoing strategies in the Baltic countries uh, bordering Russia. But no, we're talking about uh, a little bit of a snapping uh, match between uh, Trudeau and Trump, at least uh, from Trump. We know that uh, Trudeau, uh, what he initially said last night at Buckingham Palace, he didn't realize he was being recorded, and I don't think anyone else knew either. Uh, that uh, camera that was some distance from him and the other leaders who he was speaking to, you had Boris Johnson on his left, Princess Anne on his right, and opposite him, uh, French President Emmanuel Macron and uh, Dutch uh, Prime Minister Mark Rutte. You didn't really hear what any of the others were saying, but you could hear and just about make out what Justin Trudeau was saying, and that is why he got the wrath of President Trump's tongue this afternoon in London, uh, Trump saying that, uh, calling Justin Trudeau two-faced and saying that uh, at the same time, he thinks he's a nice guy, but that he was <laughs> called out on, yeah, I know, to, in the same breath, he called him a nice guy and two-faced, as only Donald Trump can do. But he reasoned it to say that he thinks that Trudeau was uh, perhaps embarrassed uh, by Canada's contribution towards 
uh, Canada's um, uh, defense budget and that it's not as much um, a percentage of a GDP as, as it is in the US, as NATO members are all expected to hit 2%. Uh, but most don't. So that's what Donald Trump has reasoned, and it has, well, created all the headlines here when you have North America's two main leaders um, perhaps not seeing eye to eye for perhaps not exactly political reasons, but other reasons. So how is this playing in the UK? Everyone else within the group in that conversation sort of off the hook because we really only heard what the prime minister said? Or how are the other countries responding to their leaders' involvement in this? Or are they free? Well, as for how it's playing in the UK, it's it's making the big headlines here. And many news sites, you go to the BBC's homepage here, it is top of the homepage there. Trump calls Trudeau two-faced at NATO summit, they're saying. Uh, other news outlets similar. But nobody's criticizing the other leaders for being involved in the discussion in any way. Well, I don't think they can because no one knows what the other leaders said. You could hear just about Boris Johnson asking Trudeau about the delay and Trudeau then responded. But uh, um, Emmanuel Macron made some comment or quip or an anecdote in the middle of it, but because he's facing away from the camera, apparently you can't really, well, you can't certainly can't lip read him yeah. and you can't make out what he's saying. So he got away with it. Had the camera been coming from the other angle, well, maybe we'd talk, be talking about Donald Trump snapping at Macron. We just don't know. So uh, uh, Donald Trump obviously calling out NATO countries to pay up more. What's the response to that in the UK? I think there's um, a it is a little bit of a sideshow. Uh, uh, Boris Johnson as well has been asked about this and uh, whether or not uh, he is res- disrespects or respects Donald Trump. Of course, he w- he said uh, he, uh, there's nothing but greatest of respect from the UK for, for Donald Trump. So it, it is making some um, waves here too. But uh, for the most part, there are other issues at play in the UK. We, of course, we have a general election coming up here just eight days time. So a lot of focus is on that and anything Boris Johnson says um, uh, could be relevant to the election and, of course, bilateral relations with the U.S. and a potential trade deal after Brexit. All that stuff is coming into play in the U.K. as well, so overshadows a lot of uh, of things when uh, we're talking about the U.K. angle. Many here are talking about the perception of the prime minister overseas. Does this change perception of, our, of the prime minister, do you think? I don't think it does. I think uh, the blackface scandal during the election was one that really yeah. tweaked and changed how people see him or perhaps how the fuller picture of how people see Justin Trudeau. Because one thing, when you look at that video, you see a Justin Trudeau that many people haven't seen at least, well, for, you know, a, a, maybe a decade since he since he entered politics and then eventually became leader of the Liberal Party and then Prime Minister, he has always in public had a very a certain persona that we all know so well now. But this was him a little more relaxed with a drink in his hand. I don't know what type of drink it was, by the way. It seemed a sort of reddish color. Yeah, I, was, I don't think I, it was a beer. We're not sure what it was. I'd have to ask you for that. It's your, yeah. it's your neck of the woods. What do you think it was? I've heard uh, that it might have been a kombucha. I mean, that I don't know if they have that at Buckingham Palace. That, wow. Nowadays... In London, they have that stuff everywhere. Uh, so, you know, that's uh, one could say perhaps that would fit his uh, fit Justin Trudeau. You know, he might be into his kombucha rather than having a beer these days. Keep fit, uh, something nice. But I don't know what it was. Uh, we can't say, uh, speculate. But Boris Johnson was sipping on something as well. Again, we don't know. They did look very relaxed. So um, the persona of Justin Trudeau is still generally quite positive. If you come to Europe and the UK, people have a very positive 
uh, impression of him. And that tends to be the case with a lot of world leaders. Macron, far more popular outside of France than he is in France. Angela Merkel, the same in Germany. And Justin Trudeau, you'd have to say, has a very positive um, image in most countries around the world on balance compared to Canada. Uh, it seems that whenever these sort of meetings are going on, that Donald Trump has a way of coming in and, and, and kind of bulldozing the agenda. Has that happened here? Uh, what about the tone and the feeling of the U.S. president as this wraps up? Yes, well, obviously, in in the lead up to this, there was a, a, a little spat with Macron as well that he yeah. had about Macron saying that um, that NATO was uh, quote unquote brain dead in the ways that it, in some of its strategy and how it's acting, and Trump amazingly coming out then to defend NATO, who he had been criticizing for much of his tenure as U.S. president. I've seen speculation that Macron was perhaps going doing some reverse psychology on the U.S. president. Don't know if that's true. But certainly Trump was defending NATO, so there was a little bit of a spat there. There's disagreements uh, between many countries about Turkey uh, in particular. Um, but uh, Donald Trump, as wherever he goes, there are headlines. And, you know, we, we just knew today that there would be a reaction. We expected it perhaps to come on Twitter. It came when he was sitting down at a press conference, and uh, it has dominated the headlines today on this uh, 70th anniversary of NATO. All right, I can't let you go, Redmond, without touching on the election. we got about a minute left. How are things playing out in the uh, latter days of this campaign? Uh, how, do you, how do you interpret what's happening at this point? It looks like uh, Boris Johnson is probably headed for a majority and possibly a good majority as things stand. So they have it, more or less about 42% in the polls for the Conservatives, Boris Johnson's Conservatives. It's a similar, almost the exact same electoral system here in the UK as Canada. So first past the post. So 42, 43% is going to get you in majority territory, depending on how the other parties pan out. Labour, the second party here, the main opposition party in the low 30s. So about nine or 10 points behind. If it stays like that, expect conservative majority but you just don't know what can happen in the last week of the of the campaign because Boris Johnson he is in some ways similar to Trump you never know what he might say what he might do what what might come out but I think people have stuck to their lines are voting very much as if this is a de facto Brexit referendum in many ways and because the opposition Labour Party have an ambiguous stance on that they are failing to really claw back and get towards the Conservative Party. So if the the Conservative Party does get a majority, what does that mean for breakfast, uh, breakfast, for Brexit moving forward in the short term? I don't know how many times I've said breakfast. Oh, said I don't feel the bad then, years. No, no, no. It's, uh, everyone does it. Um, uh, it means that we will likely see Brexit happen at the end of January. Now, we've said that before. This is the third delay to Brexit. But if uh, it, well, the MPs that he has running in this occasion, almost almost all of them, man and woman, um, uh, in every seat that he is running, are in behind his Brexit strategy and will would be supporting his Brexit deal that he uh, renegotiated. So that should, in theory, get voted by the end of January, and they'll and the UK will be out by then. But I mean, even if that does happen, you then have a huge process of the transition period and uh, trade deals. So Brexit is no way over, even if Brexit itself happens on January 31st. Redmond Shannon has been with us, Europe correspondent for Global News Canada. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 5.30 and 6 for more on all of this. Redmond, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. 
Thank you. Have a good day. Bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, anyway, so the fake tree is up at the Thompson household, and any minute now we are going out to uh, to get the real tree and have the real Christmas. Uh, it's at the other end of the house. All right. Uh, now there's rumors floating around, and I'm thinking, you know, I already had to get my snow tires on early because it started snowing. Well, the leaves were still on the trees. So, uh, you know, I, I'm thinking of the real tree. I'm just not there yet. Although now we all have to be because there's rumors floating around that there's a shortage of trees this year and apparently last. And this due to 10 years ago during recession times. Takes 10 years to grow a Christmas tree, apparently. And we'll get the expert on to tell about talk about this. Um, less were planted. So 10 years later, here we are. Less trees. Is that the case? Let's bring in Shirley Brennan, Executive Director, Christmas Tree Farmers of Ontario, and on the line with us now. Shirley, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. So what is the Christmas Tree Farmers of Ontario? So we are a group of Christmas tree farmers that uh, grow really good products that are in high demand right now. So uh, is there, in fact, a shortage? Is there any truth to the whole thing with the recession and that story? There is. So it's it's not just the recession, uh, but there is a shortage this year. Uh, we've had a few of our farms in the Hamilton area in particular that have had to close the season just because the trees aren't quite ready and they certainly don't want people to come in and cut them when they're not quite ready to be harvested. So, and then in tree lots in the city, there will be fewer trees in the tree lots as well. So why the shortage? So a couple of things. Yes, you were right when you were talking about the recession. It does take 10 years to grow a fir tree, for instance, and that seems to be the popular one. Uh, 10 years to grow an 8 to 10 foot fir tree. And then uh, you could probably get a spruce tree in about 8 years. So in 2008-2009, we had the recession. Farmers may not have planted as many trees or planted just what they typically had already um, were selling at that time and didn't, didn't plant so that you know, the forecast of what's going on now. And then it also meant that some farmers that would have expanded their property didn't at the time, whether Mm. it's leasing more farmland or whether it's buying more farmland, didn't because of the financial unrest. And now the price of land has just skyrocketed. So it's not something that they they can manage either. But it also comes down with Mother Nature. Mother Nature hasn't uh, been cooperative in some cases. In 2008 and 2009 when we were planting, same thing, uh, very hot or very wet. And then um, we looked closer to harvest time. Two years ago in Nova Scotia, they had a massive freeze in May and June, and, th- and that was for trees that were mature and ready to go to harvest. So those ones take a, a role in it. But our demand has increased so much that we now are almost doubled what we were five years ago. So in demand is uh, demand increasing is also a big part of this. How oh, do you yeah. how do you a explain huge... that? How do you explain that? Because it seemed to be for a while people were going the other way. Well, it's it's been so five years ago in Ontario we had a bill passed that the first Saturday in December is Christmas Tree Day, which is this Saturday, and 
they had uh, we had spent a lot of time promoting the farmer and educating people that when you go to a Christmas tree farm or you buy a Christmas tree, it isn't from the forest. It's actually you're not going in and killing a tree and clear cutting anywhere. That's right. Yeah. That's right. It's an and industry like corn, yeah. anything else. Yes, and that was always a misconception, right? And so we spent time on that, and that was part of our hoping to get Christmas Tree Day, that we could show people that we are an industry and a, and, and a commodity. And then four years ago in the States, they have a program called the Christmas Tree Promotion Board. So 15 cents per tree that is exported from Canada, and we export to the States 1.9 million trees a year. So 15 cents from those trees and 15 cents from every tree sold in the U.S. goes into a promotion um, uh, uh, fund. And it is all about the farmer as well, celebrating farming and educating again. And so since that, we have seen our, our demand skyrocket. Young people love to go to Christmas tree farms. New Canadians love to go to, mm. new, or to Christmas tree farms. <laughs> So we're seeing everybody and anybody out in our farms. What about types of trees? Are we going to see a shortage of more than one than the other? What does this mean for the consumer this year? Yes, so consumers are going to have a really hard time finding uh, Fraser fir. There are Fraser firs out there now as we speak, but they're going to be the first ones to go because they seem to be the popular ones. Why Why Fraser fir so popular? Why are they a great tree? Well, because uh, people like them because they retain their needles. Yeah. Having said that, I heard your intro about your wife and your uh, battle. Yes. And you walk into the house to smell that aroma. You want a white spruce or a pine, which gives you that strong Ah. smell. But is there much difference in the needle retention between a pine or a spruce and a fir? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And And that's why. People love the the fact that they don't have to vacuum as much. Right. Um, but you know what? It's it's a, a living plant. And I'm saying to people, go out, get your tree. You don't have to put it up. No. Just keep it in a cool spot and keep it away from wind, right? You want to keep it covered if it's if it's in a windy spot. Right. And, and do your normal traditions. But come out of your comfort zone. If you're used to getting a fir tree, go to a spruce tree. If you're used to having a six-foot tree, you might want a tabletop this year, right? Like, there's so many things that we have, as an industry, have listened that our consumer wants, and we've put it all in place. Hmm. So we just have to go out of our comfort zone. So what does this mean for prices? Prices have gone up a little bit. And a lot of people have assumed that the prices have gone up because of the demand, and, and uh, you know, Economics 101 does mm-hmm. usually say when there's a demand, the price does go up. Having said that, farming costs have gone up drastically, whether it's hydro in Ontario, it's hydro, uh, taxes, uh, whether it is, you know, um, uh, just transportation. We just had a CN rail strike. So some of the trees coming from different provinces were on that strike, involved in that strike. Those sort of things, transportation has gone up. So it's not all about the 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 price increase. It's not all about just because there's been a, such a demand. 
So the trees that were, is there any advantage to waiting to get a tree? Obviously now with a shortage, obviously many don't want to do this, but is there an advantage to waiting later to get your tree because uh, it means it was cut later? Or are all of these cut at the same time, roughly? It it depends on where you're getting them and and where they've come from. So a a lot of our... Well, I can say, uh, and I'll clearly say, any any wholesaler across Canada knew what their sales were in August. So they knew when they had to cut and what they had to cut. And everybody cuts differently. In in some areas, they cut them all and they put them they cut them all and then bring them to a, a drop off point and they start shipping out from there. Some people cut several times a, a season, and then some people cut as needed. So it really depends on, but how you tell if your tree is fresh, you just take it and um, you can either snap a a little branch off and it will, you'll see that it's it's kind of got the spring back on it. Yeah. Or when you're sh- shaking it, stomp the the stump or the trunk down on the ground and you'll see the dry needles come out. And don't get me wrong, those dry needles don't necessarily mean that it's not uh, uh, a good tree. It just means you're getting rid of the natural needles that are going to go dry throughout the year anyway. Uh, now, what about caring for these things? If you're buying a tree now, probably yeah. a little early to be taking it in, no? No. No, we've had, we've had tree farms in Ontario open since November the uh, 15th. And so people have been buying trees and bringing them in and taking care of them. It's all about taking care of them. So when you bring your tree home, if you're not, like I said, if you're not bringing it into the house right away, make sure it stays in a cool spot. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to put it in water. But when you bring it into the house, you're going to make a fresh cut. Mm-hmm. Even if you've just gone to the farm and cut it down, right. you're going to make a fresh cut. You're going to put it in lots of water. And, and the first few days, it's going to drink lots of yeah. water. Yeah. So you want to just keep watering it. Just take care of it like you would any other plant. When it stops taking, and I, you know, I've, again, I've done this for years, and, and yep. obviously the first couple of days it just sucks everything, every water, all the water you give it. What happens when it starts, it stops taking water, it slows down? Does that mean it's done? No. So as long as it's still taking some water, eventually it will, it will just slow down. Yeah. The trunk is full. But if it stopped taking water... You have to uh, be sure that it never got below the water level. Not never got below the trunk, right? Because if it ever got below the trunk, then the trunk is sealed over, right? And if that happens, I have a quick fix for that. Rather than taking all your decorations, I was going to say, how do I get it out the backyard with all the <laughs> yeah. stuff still on it? <laughs> no, if that happens, take uh, I always say an exacto knife because it's nice and sharp. And you want to make really deep slits up the sides of the trunk. Oh, that makes sense. And then put it back in water and never let those slits get so that they are yeah. not with, without water. That's a great idea. All right. Yeah. Uh, what about additives to it? Do we put anything in or is it just water, water, water? Some people have said Coca-Cola in the old days, uh, sugar, uh, anything like that? No, water. Water is the best thing for it. Uh, and, and water it all the time. Like, like we were talking about the difference between the spruce and the fir tree. I water my spruce tree cause I love that, that rich aroma. And I water my spruce tree morning and night. I top it up just to make sure 
and I'll have a spruce tree. We're going to get ours this weekend, and I won't take it out until the middle of January. So uh, it's fine if you get them this weekend. Just set them up, put them inside. You shouldn't let. You don't have to wait another week or two. No, no. Yeah. You, this weekend, this weekend because it's Christmas tree day. Yes. So a lot of farms are really looking forward to that. But this weekend they will. Uh, it's it's going to be so busy and a lot of people. It's the busiest season. Yeah. Uh, the busiest weekend. What and about pets? What about yes. pets that, like, we just got a dog. My my, yes. my wife's kind of concerned about that. That being said, it's usually cats that have a problem with the tree, not dogs. No? Or am I being biased here? No, no. It's, it's it, pets. You know what? Every pet is different, right? If they learn mm-hmm. that that's, it's kind of like your kids, right? Our pets are our kids, and we teach them. But uh, but the trees are safe for, for dogs. The thing we find with dogs is they might drink the water. Well, you know what? We don't put anything in our tree that... <laughs> Better that is, than the toilet, that, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, so it, it, they're safe to be around pets. All right. So uh, you're predicting that this weekend's going to be a banger weekend for the tree farms then. It is. It's going to be a busy time. Yep. All right. So and, uh, shortage, was there a shortage last year as well? Is this, and after this year, are we pretty much out of the woods? What are we looking like for the future? We we did have a shortage last year, but what we were looking at more was the species as opposed to all-around shortage. So last year it seemed to be with just the fir trees or the Fraser firs, and now we've really come to realize, you know what, we could not have imagined that we were going to grow so quickly. And, and yeah. so we're looking at all trees. So is everybody, all the farmers, planning like a bejeebers right now and, and anticipating that this trend continues? Well, we are, we are, well, we, we do plant twice a year. We plant in the spring, spring and the fall. Um, but it all comes down to having the, the land, right? We can't, we can't plant trees if we don't have land. All right. Uh, we just got a couple of minutes left. couple of okay. tips, tips for people who may be going out. And you brought up a good point. New Canadians who might be new at all of this. Yep. Uh, what are some of the tips if you're going out for a natural tree? Okay. If you're going out, know the size of your room. And people laugh when I say that, but <laughs> they they come home with a ten foot tree and they've only got eight foot ceilings. Yeah, guilty. <laughs> yeah. So know the size of your room, and you know what? Just think about what you really want. Do you want to have to remove? I I talked to one lady two years ago, and she said she removed all the furniture in the tree room, and I said what? <laughs> and she said yes, because we always got such a huge tree, so she put her furniture in storage. And that was the tree room for the season. And wow. I thought, okay, know, know the size of your room. The other tip is go out and have fun. Um, go to our website. Find out where the farms are. And we, we have a couple of new ones around the Hamilton area. So um, go to the Harvest Your Own section of our website and find out where the farms are and go and have fun. It's all about spending time with your family. All right. And the website, Shirley. It is christmastrees.on.ca. christmastrees.on.ca. Shirley Brennan has been with us, Executive Director, Christmas Tree Farmers of Ontario. Yeah, there's a shortage, not so much the recession, but more people are just buying in. Shirley, thanks for the time as always. Uh, Good luck this year. Thank you, and have a Merry Christmas. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.